Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Amen. Uh, you may be seated. So it's an honor and a privilege uh, to serve you in this capacity uh, once again. I think the last time I spoke here was back in the beginning of March. And so as maybe some of us know, we are continuing and ending our series on Titus. Uh, so it's been a kind of three-part series uh, the whole year. So if you've been keeping up with us or been attending Gateway, uh, the elders and Johnny and myself, we spoke in March or February, March, and then uh, they spoke again in, in June. And so again, we're good today and, and next week, we will be finishing up our series on Titus. So uh, before I begin here, why don't we open up in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you, Lord. We, we give you praise for, for bringing us here today. And it, uh, it is a privilege, Lord, to, to preach your word, to preach your truth to uh, Gateway here today, to our Gateway family. And so I ask, Lord, um, that you will do work within our hearts and our minds, Father, we pray that your spirit will open up our eyes and our ears so that we could hear the glorious gospel truth today. And we just pray again now that you will be with myself and Matt again as we present your word. Lord, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So back in 2010, um, they and I were just celebrating, they and my wife, we were just celebrating our first year of marriage uh, when I started the master's college program. Around the same time, I started an internship at a church in San Ramon. So as you, as you can imagine, uh, this was the beginning of a very busy time for us newlyweds. 
But after much prayer and counsel, we decided that this was the time to do it before we started a family. And I was thankful for doing so. Um, And I know some people here at Gateway attended the same program, so I'm sure we share similar experiences. I wanted to list a couple classes uh, we took uh, in the beginning of the program. And let me just read them off to you. Uh, One of the first classes we took was uh, research methods, was uh, just kind of educating us on how to do research biblically. Uh, We also took hermeneutics, systematic theology one, and systematic theology two. So as you can tell, the front end of the program was heavy on theology and doctrine, which we all loved. But after an endless amount of papers and reading, I started to grow weary. And here's, my, here's just a brief glimpse of my schedule. Uh, I would teach high school students on Wednesday evening. On Thursdays, I would go to class from 6 to 10. On Fridays, I would teach the young adult group, the college group. And on Sunday, I would teach junior high students. In addition to that, I had a full-time job. All the while, I had a very patient new bride whom God called me to minister to on top of everything else. Now, I'm not telling you this story to to sort of give praise to my life, but I'm telling you this story uh, because I believe we all share similar experiences in the Christian life. Right now, maybe some of us at Gateway are going through various seasons of life, seasons of heartbreak, loneliness, disappointment, weariness, and maybe hopelessness, all the while striving to live live the godly life that God has called us to live, which is a grace-based life, which is the overall theme in Titus. So it it was after my last theology class that I realized my heart and mind needed a gospel awakening. I wanted grace poured into my life, I needed the reminder of grace as I was feeling the weight of ministry, the responsibility of being a godly husband, and the pull of being that submissive employee of a corporate company. After months of of classes full of theology and doctrine, I started another class the following summer in 2011. The classes keep on going, and it was never ending. This class was actually called Dynamics of Grace, which was actually taught by our very own pastor, Pastor Rod. In fact, it was the very first time I met Pastor Rod and Elia, and they were in the works of planting a church by the name of Gateway. And that's a story in itself. That's God's sovereign will. But it was in this class that I had the opportunity to write papers on the gospel and grace. And it's the first time where I actually learned that term coined by Jerry Bridges in his book, Disciplines of Grace, preaching the gospel to myself. And so I wrote papers on Galatians 2.20. Colossians 3, in our passage today, which is Titus. So this Titus passage resonates within me. I believe God used this particular time in my life to remind me that grace indeed changes everything. The way I live, the way I face certain certain circumstances, and to always be ready for the seasons of life that God sovereignly gives me. So it is my prayer that we hear and see the glorious grace of God today, hoping that it changes how we live. So let me just give a quick overview since it's been a while. Um, Johnny Johnny and the elders preached back in June, like I mentioned, uh, verses 1 through 10. And it shows us how grace-based living looks like to us. 
When I say us, I mean those who are older men. If you're looking through at your Bibles, I'm just kind of skimming through verses 1 through 10, chapter 2. Older men, older women, young men, young women, masters, slaves. In other, in other words, you could put it this way. Fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, employees, supervisors. And if you look around here at Gateway today, you will see the, the different people who fit the description that Paul mentions in verses 1 through 10. So it is not by accident that we gather here today as a church family attempting to live the life that God has called us to live, which is, again, I'm going through verses 1 through 10, to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, reverent in behavior, pure, to have integrity, dignity, submissive, and I could go on and on. But these are, are imperatives that we are called to follow in being a part of the church and ultimately a follower of Christ. Thankfully, the book does not end with verse 10. I mean, can you imagine if the book ended at verse 10? It's, it's not very transformative news. If, if Pastor Rod were to give us a list of commands with no reason or foundation in following it, we would eventually fail, right? It's just this type of legalism. And so the passage we are walking through today gives us the reason and the hope that we have to press on in the Christian life. It brings to light that grace changes everything. And it's because of grace that we are able to live as God commands in verses 1 through 10. And so verses 11 through 14 give us the theological foundation for living this way. So as you read to me in verse 10, as it concludes, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So what is the doctrine of God? In verses 11 through 14, this is the doctrine that we are to adorn, the doctrine of grace. In the beginning of verse 11, we see this small transition word with the word for. In other words, we should live this way, verses 1 through 10, because, and it starts with a simple but profound opening. And I'm starting with verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. And we can't go any further without grasping this supreme truth, which takes us to our first point. Understanding grace. For the grace of God has appeared. Christ appeared to all of humanity. Gateway, we should never outgrow the need for the gospel in our lives. We should never get tired of the gospel message. And it's in this text, the grace of God has appeared. This is not a mere attribute of God, but this, is, this grace mentioned is Christ coming to save us. The word appeared functions as a te technical term to describe a hero who rescues someone from danger. And Paul kind of coordinates that with Greek literature. He uses the same terminology to refer to the past or future coming of Christ to rescue his people. And it's also mentioned, that word appearing in verse 13. So I spoke last time. The gospel story is clear. The gospel starts with God, the Holy One, the creator of all things who created us. But because of sin, we are once separated from God and subject to his wrath. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. It continues in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. 
Pastor Rod preached in Ephesians 2. What did he, and what, what, is, what does the passage say? It says, we are once followers of the prince of this world. We are once children of wrath. But the good news is, in 1 Timothy 1.15, the, say, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Peter 3.18, sorry, these verses are not on there, so you just kind of have to follow along with me. I'll try to go as slow as possible. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous and the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't get tired of hearing this. This is the story of the gospel. Christ lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we deserve, so that we can have everlasting joy in him forever. But we live in a culture today where we're so used to pointing to ourselves, telling our story. Maybe that's by the means of blogging or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. These aren't bad things, because I know the majority of us use it. I use it as well. However, it's a stark reminder that people are constantly magnifying themselves. We want to tell our story through pictures, updates, and 140 characters or less. But the, score, but the story of the gospel is not about us. It's about someone else, and it's a story that saves humanity. We bring nothing to the gospel message except our sinfulness. That's why we sing words like, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Christ appearing brought us from death to life. Grace appearing is what awakened our dead souls to save us. Which brings us to our next, the second portion of verse 11. Bringing salvation for all people. Christ offered salvation to all people. One very important thing to note in this passage is to clarify the meaning of bringing salvation for all people. I believe we all agree, most of us in here, hopefully, that this text does not mean everyone will be saved. It does not promote universal salvation as it contradicts what scripture says about salvation. It's only those who believe, right? John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And Matt preached uh, the beginning of this letter in chapter one. Paul is clear that salvation is only through the faith, the faith of God's elect. So the text is clear that only those who believe will be saved. The Bible is clear on that. Therefore, what Paul is referring to here is all of humanity. The message of the gospel is made available to all kinds of people, all races, regardless of age, class, or gender. Grace brings salvation to who? Verses 1 through 10. To men and women, young and old, slave and free. The last time I preached about Cretan culture, was, that was that great struggle, right, with the Jewish Cretans? The circumcision party? They thought they were favored by God for the glorious gospel message. But Paul preaches that, right? The gospel is for who? 
Jew and Gentile. He reemphasizes all people to make his point. God's rescue is offered to and is sufficient for all people, but again, only those who believe will be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4, God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So as we see in point one, this is past grace, a one-time event that happened, the gospel. As one commentary puts it, because of the gospel, because of past grace, our hearts should flood with wonder, thanksgiving, and gratitude. And one more thing, determination. Determination to do what? That's good works. To be zealous, as it refers to at the end of verse 14. This is where the works of grace come to light, which brings us to our next point. Once we understand grace, it enables us to practice grace. Sorry. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The first thing we see here is grace-motivated obedience. So I want to be clear as well that once we are saved, we do not immediately live a perfect life of obedience. I think we could all agree on that. Um, And I'm sure all of us have sinned maybe in the past 24 hours, maybe this morning, Maybe not Matt, because he's preaching uh, today, and I, I think that's the golden rule where you can't sin before you preach or something. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but yes, we are made perfect because of Christ, but there is the process of sanctification, the process of being made holy. We are becoming like Christ after salvation. We learned this in, in uh, the Cornerstone class. We learned that what the results of sanctification are ongoing so cornerstone class there goes my plug-in for biblical counseling please join us Um, that's why paul uses the word training and sometimes paul uses this in in some of his texts like in second timothy 2 5 as an athlete who's being disciplined and practice so we as believers are constantly training the question is training to do what Renouncing ungodliness, saying no to ungodliness, putting to death worldliness. Colossians 3, let me read this for you, starting with verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This is living in present grace. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse five, to put, de- put to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Ungodliness points to external living, and worldly passions refers to our internal impulses. Again, obeying these things is not a means to get to God, but the results of grace changing us. Our next point is grace-motivated change. Grace changes the way we view things, live life, and ultimately obey God. But there's a stern warning here about obedience, okay? Pastor and author Tim Keller describes a Christian obedience in two different ways. 
He's saying, as Christians, this is how we kind of connect the gospel. This is what we believe the gospel to be. He connects it in two different ways. First, he says, we obey, therefore, we are accepted. Let me say that again. We obey, therefore, we are accepted. And this is the view that some Christians have, right? Maybe some of us have it today. Maybe some of us have it, had it growing up. I know I did. We obey, therefore, we are accepted. But this view never lasts. Obedience stops after a certain point. It's a try harder mentality. It's trying to be your own savior rather than pointing to Christ as savior. But true Christian obedience is just the opposite. And he goes on to say, it says, we are accepted, therefore we obey. We are accepted, therefore we obey. Because Christ saved us, grace motivates us to obey and to change. And in doing so, we train in our sanctification. But why do we obey? So if you guys remember, Cretan culture was full of people characterized by drunkenness and, and promiscuity. And this is what Paul was saying in, in, this, in this text, right? I see him saying, he's saying, show them a life more satisfying than the ones they are living. Show them a life that is satisfying more than the ones they are living. Obeying God puts God's saving power on display for the world to see as we change because of grace. This shows the world that our treasure is in heaven and not on this earth. It shows that grace is a supernatural occurrence that wrecks us for the glory of God. It moves us. It stirs us to the point where obeying is not merely a task, but a lifestyle of grace-based godliness. Church, we are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. That's what, that's what it says in Romans 6. When we preach the gospel to ourselves, only then do we experience true freedom. What is that him? He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. You know, I love coffee, and it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that I love coffee because I'm always drinking some type of coffee. Um, years ago, I, Starbucks was my go-to coffee. Uh, I was addicted. I'm not sure if addict is a strong word, but when they, they know your name and they know your drink when you go into a certain Starbucks, um, that kind of shows that you're a little bit addicted to it. Um, so I, I love Starbucks. I love going there. I love drinking it. But then I discovered something better. It was another coffee shop. And it's called Pete's. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I think, I think Pete's is better. It's a stronger coffee, which I prefer. And no, this is not a stage to protest um, to replace our coffee with Pete's because I know we have Starbucks, um, even though Pete's is better. But I tell you this because it relates to how we view obedience. We know that gospel freedom enables us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, but it also enables us to say and to see that God is better. God is better than that lustful thought. God is better than our anxiousness. God is better than our insecurities. God is better. Fill in, then fill in the blank there for you, for yourselves. Psalm 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
The psalmist is saying, I'd rather be the lowest of the low in God's house than dwell with the wicked. Grace says no. Grace says that God is better. Don't be fooled by the empty promises of Satan. Let grace work in you while you strive to be holy day by day. In this present life that we are living, we live by grace day by day. And so I echo the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So, you see that the first point was past grace, the glorious gospel, which helps us to live in present grace which will eventually carry us on to future grace, and we wait in anticipation. Which brings us to our third point, anticipating grace. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. With the word waiting, Paul gives us a sense of eagerness here. So as believers, we are to be eager to see Christ return as it indicates here, the blessed hope, right? So waiting, eagerness, blessed hope, which is Christ. We need to be eager to see Christ come again. Romans 8, through 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons. The redemption of our bodies. So we are waiting for our hero, our appearing, remember? Appearing hero, Jesus Christ, to rule over all. Someone once said, today we are free from what the power of sin, but one day we'll be free from the presence of sin. 2 Timothy 4, 8, henceforth there is a laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, we await, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform us, our lowly bodies, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. But I know there are some, some professing Christians who love the world too much that there is no eagerness within them. Let me say it again. I know there are some professing Christians who love the world too much. There, there is no eagerness within them. In the last church I taught at, I used to teach a group of students, and sometimes I would, I would teach on the, the second coming of Christ. Um, you know, Christ coming again, we should be excited, we should be excited. And there, there's, there's always this one student, this young lady, Every time I would preach on, on Christ coming again, she, she would raise her hand all the time, never fails. She would raise her hand, and he was coming, and she would ask this question, but isn't it a day to God like a thousand years to us? 
And she would always ask that question. I would just always be like, Are you, I know you're going to ask this question, and, and Thay and I were just laughing at it earlier. Um, and she would always ask it. Isn't a day to God like a thousand years to us? So as I think back of those times of her asking that question, she was presuming on grace. Her thoughts were, I, I, don't, I don't want to, I want to do whatever I want to do right now because, Christ, because God will come later. And some of us maybe are, I'm praying that none of us are not like that, that we are eager to see Christ return, that we're not waiting, we're not presuming on grace. And she, she this, little, this student, this young lady, she didn't want to deal with it yet. But as Christians, we should be waiting in anticipation. So let me just summarize everything else here. Verse 11, we see past grace. Verse 12, we see living in present grace, which points to future grace in verse 13. And then Paul beautifully points right back to the gospel in verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. couple of things we, we see here. Redeemed by Christ. The gospel redeems us. If you just see this connection within this passage, the gospel redeems us from, verse 12, ungodliness and worldly passions. That's what, that's what the gospel redeems us by. And then what? We're purified. The gospel purifies us to do good works, which is, verse 12 again, this is, I'm connecting it here, um, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So again, ungodliness, we were redeemed from ungodliness and worldly passions, purified to do good works. And third, which is my point C, treasured by Christ, his own possession, as he says here in the text. Now these are very intimate words that Paul uses. It reveals how God sees us as a treasured people. And these words are just echoed throughout scripture. Let me read some scripture passages for you. Deuteronomy 14.2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all peoples who are on the face of the earth. Exodus 19.5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. Ezekiel 37, verse 23. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And where do we look when we think about future grace? Where, where do we look? Where do we turn to every, when, we don't, when we want to know about the future? Some of us, maybe all of us, we turn to Revelation. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this passage in Revelation chapter 21. I'm only going to read verses 1 through 5. 
This is future grace. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let us eagerly wait for God who will make all things new. So in summary, the cross says we are so messed up, so lost, so hopeless, so sinful that nothing less than the death of the Son of God can save us. But through the cross, Jesus says, I wanted to do it. I pursued you. I died for you because you are my treasured possession. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Rest in the promises of the gospel. This is grace. So just a concluding reminder here in verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And as you remember, this is Paul writing to Titus and, and the future elders, church leaders, Declare, teach, exhort, and rebuke. Pastors, elders, church leaders, and all future church leaders do not preach any other gospel message but this one. So you won't be disregarded. Three things I want to close with. Three charges for us here. A charge to the elders to protect the blood-bought flock of God from fierce wolves and false teachers. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Two, a charge to Gateway, beloved Gateway family, to pray for our elders so that they may be bold in proclaiming the gospel message as they protect and shepherd the church. Allow our elders to shepherd and counsel you and your family. Make it easy for them. Show them grace as they have shown you. And lastly, a charge to all believers. Let us adorn the doctrine of God, adorn the grace of God by pushing the gospel deeper into the corners of our redeemed soul so that we all realize and see that grace indeed changes everything. Let's pray. Father, it is only by your grace and mercy that you have saved us. And so, Father, as, as we close and Matt comes up here, we ask that grace is stirring our hearts and our minds right now and that we are reminded of the gospel message. We pray, Lord, that we see that grace indeed changes everything. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, J.D. Is on there?
I'll have you know I actually got up really early so nobody was up so I wouldn't sin before I got here. <laughs> Didn't know that was a requirement for preaching. I would have removed myself from the preaching opportunity. Um, so I want to go ahead and um, read verse 1 through 8 again. Titus 3, it is a real honor to be here. And um, I don't know... Um, so Rod has a convenient way of leaving every time I preach. This is the third time I preach and the third time he's gone. So um, I think he has to actually just listen to it. So I know he's extra gracious knowing that he can't see all the, you know, the sweating that goes on along with preaching. So uh, let me read the passage. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Um, just recently, actually, in September of 2014, Pew Research did some new polling of uh, thinking of religious influence in America. This is what they said. Nearly three-quarters of the public, 72%, now think religion is losing its influence in American life, up five percentage points from 2010 to the highest level in Pew Research polling over the past decade. And most people who say religion's influence is waning see this as a bad thing. But, this is the interesting but, a growing share of the American public wants religion to play a role in U.S. politics. The share of Americans who say churches and other houses of worship should express their views on social and political issues is up six points since the 2010 midterm elections, from 43% all the way up to almost 50% to 49%. And get this, a growing minority of Americans, 32%, think churches should endorse political candidates for political office. So, I don't know what you think of that, but if, if, if religion is losing its influence in America, what as a church are we to do? You know, what does the Bible tell us to do? Um, how are we to live in what seems like a growingly, overtly pagan culture? Um, does the Bible have, us, have anything to tell us this morning? As, as, as we watch the news, and we kind of get tired of, of the sort of evolution of, quote, freedom, Right to the point where anybody can do almost anything they want and get away with it if they have enough money. We're angry that perversion is sort of legalized right, in various states and in our country, and, and the will of God seems to be blatantly rejected. You know, it's one thing to sort of have sin. It's something else to redefine it as acceptable human behavior. And, and you've got to celebrate it. You don't just have to accept it. You must celebrate it. 
you know, what should we do as a Bible-believing church? You know, how are we supposed to see this? You know, Rod oftentimes actually holds up his Bible and says, how are we supposed to look at this world and this earth right now? How are we supposed to do that? Are we supposed to sign petitions, um, head over to the city hall in order for the culture to be changed? You know, it's surprising. Our passage actually will address this very same issue um, that Paul addresses to Titus nearly 2,000 years ago. So he has something to tell us this morning. And I would just start with this. You know, um, our goal is to save souls. It's, um, and that would change the culture from the inside out. You know, we have a mission and a vision. It says, we exist to glorify God by building a community of believers who are actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we are about. We preach Christ and nothing else right, among you, except Christ and him crucified. That's what we're about. That's what Gateway is all about. Um, we recognize that we are in a pagan culture. The Bay Area is a nice specimen of paganity. And, um, but in these verses, 1 through 8, Paul has a reminder to the church of how the justified are to live, right? He details out what, what seems like an impossible list, and, and then he re- recollects what was what was and what could even be a temptation for us today as believers. And then he, he reminds them of the gospel, right? And then he actually says, you know, and this is a benefit to everyone that's involved, everyone that lives around you. So let's see. So I know it says like number three for number, letter A, but so this is a reminder to the church. He says this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So a little context. Think about the church in Crete. We've talked about this multiple times. It's filled with, with, with believers and false teachers, right? And it's surrounded by a culture of pagans on every side. And, and there may be many churches in and around Crete, and, and they're without sort of a full staff of elders, you know, so they could be gathering together on a Sunday morning to worship God, and it's just them. There's no one doing any oversight or anything like that. And, and those people that they've assigned as elders, the people in the body, are not even willing to submit to them. So, <clears throat> so there, here's sort of uh, seven things that uh, Paul actually calls out for the church. And, and Paul is now going to tell us, hey, this is what's required of the church this is how you're going to live in this pagan culture. Not too long ago, Rod did preach in the book of Jude, and it's very similar. But if he says, look, if you want, to, want the surrounding society to believe in the gospel, right, that you're proclaiming, you've got to live this way. This is what your life should be look like. This, this is what your life should look like. Your life is, is a platform, right, on which the salvation message is believed by the unbelieving world. And I always think of the converse, right? Your life is the platform on which the salvation message is, could be dismissed, right? So they look at you as a representative of Christ. This is not a list of do's and don'ts. I, um, JD did a great, great job. This, is, uh, this, OB, this list is all grace-based. So let's look, at, let's look at all seven of them. The first one is submissive, right? So he says you need to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And I want to ask this question do you feel a sense of responsibility to only submit to authority if you agree with them? Or as long as it's fair in your eyes? How about this one? 
How about only as long as it doesn't require too much inconvenience? You know, we are to submit to these rulers and be ready for every good work. You know, and Paul just actually, he doesn't just refer this to like civil powers. He also talks about um, spiritual powers. We bow the knee. We don't fight the system. We don't attack it, right? We don't revolt. We aren't revolutionaries, right? We aren't protesters. We're submissive. Very applicable. When there is a spare the air day, guess what? We spare the air. If, if the people of the church, I mean, if just think about the world. If the people of the church will not honor authority in or outside the church, the word of God will have no credibility for those outside the church. And then he says, number two, he says, be obedient. Whether the law says we comply, whatever the law says, we comply and we obey. And the only time we disobey is when we've been mandated by Scripture to do something we're, we're forbidden to do or not to do something we're compe- being compelled to do. I mean, you can look at Acts chapter 4, verse 18. It's the very sort of common one. I think actually Rod referred to it not too, not too many weeks ago. 4.18 says this. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. There comes a point in time when the, when the state or the county or the federal government turns against the church and tells the church not to do what God has mandated to do. And then we have to obey God and suffer the consequences. Prison, death, we are obedient people. Just this week, the city of Houston, some of you may have heard about this, has subpoenaed the sermons, they changed it to speeches, emails, text messages, and notes from five pastors, right, regarding anything they have said about homosexuality or the mayor who happens to be an outspoken lesbian in light of the equal rights ordinance that the city council passed. Well, what should these pastors do, right? Immediately you think, ah, just protest or whatever it happens to be, right? You may have some things in mind what they should be doing, but depending upon your situation, one thing is clear, at least from this passage, they should submit to rulers and authorities and they need to be obedient. And they must have their Bibles open. It's to this passage, and I would say to Romans 13, 1 through 7. And we, as a people in this church, should be praying for those pastors, that they would not um, mar the name of Jesus Christ by their behavior. So number three, it says we need, we need to be ready for every good work. So Titus 1.16 reminds us that the pagans were unfit for any good work. Right, And they were denying him by their works. These, these were pagans that were set, calling themselves Christians. But as Christians, we should be fit for any good work, whatever that happens to be. We're eager to do every positive good. We're not just sort of knuckling under. We're not just sort of bending our back and bowing the knee. We're glad, we're eager, we're anxious to, to pursue every good deed we can within our society, whatever that happens to be. And number four, it says to speak evil of no one. <clears throat> I just want to challenge you news and political junkies. It says this, we're never to speak about someone in a spiteful or critical manner, anybody. 
We don't speak evil of people. We don't blast them. We don't curse them. We don't malign their name, their character. So let me ask you, how are you doing with that one? I am not doing as well as before I started studying this passage. Number five, it says to avoid quarreling. Paul says, don't be insubordinate or empty talkers. He's just, that's what he said in chapter 1, verses 10. Don't be subordinate or empty talkers. We're not contentious. We don't fight. We don't pick fights. We don't retaliate, whatever that happens to be. And I would say this, that, you know, as far as what goes on inside the church, Satan would like nothing more than to hear infighting and backbiting within the church. He wouldn't have to worry himself about unbelievers coming to the gateway because we'd be so busy fighting with each other that unbelievers would be repelled by our witness. Number six, he says, be gentle, as in meek. Meekness is power under control. And we should be gentle. We should show every possible kindness to everyone in our society, including our leaders and all of those in authority and the people that we are employed by and who are over us. I did talk about employers a couple months back and all our teachers all the way up and down of our society. And I want to ask you, when you think about your relationships this morning, you know, is this list getting uncomfortable to think about? You know, why would Paul give us this list? And we begin to examine ourselves and just think very deeply about our relationships and think, are my, my relationships, do they look like this? Number seven, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, this all people is the same thing that J.D. was talking about, that all may come to Christ, right? These are all people. All our relationships are to be governed by the kind of like selfless words and actions that have been just mentioned in the first two chapters, in two, two verses. So here's the list, right? How can we have compassion? I would just ask, how can we have compassion on, this, on, on what makes us angry or takes money even from our pocketbook or causes... January 1, 2015, the price of gasoline to go up, right? Or takes away the freedom to barbecue when I want. I mean, what are the consequences of not, not being this way? That's the sort of the, the answer you have to sort of, well, what is, what's, the, what's the alternative? Well, so Ephesians 4, 31 gives us a good list of what happens to us when we're not this way. And it says we have bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice. Of course, sort of Paul would never sort of leave us just with that list. Of course, he says, you know, at the end of that verse, verse 32, he says, you need to forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. But I don't just have just that, right? We don't just have, well, look, um, I need to remember that Christ forgave me so incredibly for my sin. If you would turn with me just a couple of books over to the left, it's 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul actually gives some instructions. So he, he, he suggests something we can do related to this. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, it says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, here's that word, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
I would just say, do we forget that all people are blinded in the minds by the God of this world? You know, how else do you expect unconverted people to act, right, other than like unconverted people? And how do unconverted people act? They act under the influence of Satan and is this system that we're under. And we don't try to attempt to change culture by getting people to follow more rules or instilling laws. We preach the gospel and that changes men and women internally. And that's where it starts. J.D. mentioned this, you know, we don't even belong to this culture. We are simply sort of aliens. This is our temporary place, right? We're given a nice, wonderful roof over our head and everything like that, but we are just passing through as Christians. It's Philippians 3.20. Your life and my life is the platform on which the salvation message of Jesus Christ is believed by the unbelieving world, right? Or the opposite, they can dismiss it just the same. So maybe you've looked at that list and said, yeah, it's not so bad. I'm pretty good on that one. So Paul actually takes us to verse 3. If we look a recollection of what was. So he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So the Christian's life today should actually be different than the world around us. If it's not, there's something really wrong. And, and verse 3 is the opposite of what he says in verse 1 and 2. So seven virtues are in verse 1 and 2, and seven vices are in verse 3. So I'm going to go through them. He says, we were once foolish, as in ignorant, as in they can't know the truth. And number two, we were disobedient. They don't want to do the truth. And number three, we were led astray into all kinds of different errors. And, and you know, the amazing thing about this list, it gets worse and worse the, longer you, the further and further you go down. So what, what do they become? They become fla- slaves to various passions and pleasures, right? And he talks about worldly passions in, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 11. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, all kinds of evil desires. They are driven by the impulse they have within them, which is lust. They're driven by their feelings and what makes them feel good. You would hear anybody just, that's with a central sort of theme. Whatever they say, it's all about how they feel. And once they get a taste of lust and pleasure, they spend their whole life on consuming this kind of thing to the extent that they have every evil intent is, in their, is, is for everyone. It's just they, they've got something out to get somebody and, and they don't care who stands in their way in order to get it. And then he says, we were passing our days in malice and envy. And, and they never get satisfaction because lust is never satisfied. And pleasure is never lasting. And so they continue to consume what anybody else has that gets in the way. They become angry and hostile and malicious and envious. And it feeds and it goes on and on until it consumes them. And that leads ultimately to verse 3, number 6 and 7. They're hated by others and they hate one another. So Paul has this incredible progression down, or I guess digression. And he says they become consumed with hating anybody who stands in their way. They're self-centered to the degree where they hate anyone that is an obstacle or a problem to what they believe. To put it in today's vernacular, they have become intolerant, exactly what they accuse Christians of being today. 
right? And then ultimately, the place where they, they hate everybody, they, they want to be in a place where they hate everybody else but themselves and only want to be surrounded with people just like them. They say, I want what I want when I want it. And I'm going to do anything to get it. And I don't care if it leaves me all by myself or with people just like me. And you know what? Amazing. They follow what the world calls wise and they realize that it totally leads to emptiness. And just read Ecclesiastes. Solomon had everything. So where is the hope in all of this? So Paul has actually told them, hey, this is what you should be like. Remember what it was like. So go back to Ephesians 4. So Paul has a very similar list as, as, as in Titus, but he says this when he's just describing these people, right? He says they have, be, this is verse 18. He says they are darkened in their understanding. So Paul has an incredibly compassionate understanding of people that are not saved alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And this is what he says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. You, you have to look at them as Jesus looked at them and see them sadly on their way to hell and unable to do anything other than what they're doing. It's a very compassionate way to see people they're the, way because God, they're the way they are because God hasn't saved them. And I'm the way and you are the way you are because God saved you. If you go back and look at verse 3 just one time, uh, it's, I think this is a very interesting part of how Paul writes. And I mentioned this before. You know, Paul is about 60 years old at this time. He's been a believer for 30 years. And here he says this, For we ourselves... He doesn't stand sort of on the sidelines and say, oh yeah, that's the way you were, and uh, that's, you should recall that. You know, just, he just sort of like stands sort of at arm's distance. He includes himself in that group. For we ourselves, we were once foolish, passing our days, right? The very temptation sort of to distance himself from his previous sin, he actually brings it closer. And this is very important for the next point, is because apart from the work of God, we were all hopeless. To make it very personal, you could actually very personalize this statement and say, I was once foolish and disobedient, led astray. I was a slave to, to my passions and pleasures, passing my days in malice and envy. And it got so bad, I hated others, and I hate others. Paul makes sure that we understand that apart from the work of God, we're just hopeless. And it, we sort of rely entirely on the work of Jesus Christ and not ourselves. You know, so, so what happened? This point three, I call it a righteousness imputed. And he's, this is verse four through, through eight. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then verse 8, he says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work, works. 
So verse 7 through 4 through 7 really gives us sort of the doctrinal basis for the imperatives in verse 1 and 2. Right? He can't actually say verse 1 and 2 without actually saying, don't forget the gospel. It's the foundation of the obedience and blessing, what turns out to be blessing. You cannot, as, as people, we cannot do verse 1 and 2 if not for his grace being poured out on us as described in verse 4 through 7. It just becomes a series of things I have to do and it becomes a yoke upon my neck, right? I just, I'm not going to be able to do this. It's not possible. So let's take a look and break it down just a little bit. I know a full sermon can actually be preached on verse 4 through, four through 8 and I'm obviously not going to do that. So, but let's take a look and just break it down a little bit. Verse 4 and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Our salvation is a consequence of what's in God's heart, not what's in ours. He is the rescuer. It's according to his own mercy. Our salvation is, is not even a reward of what we do, but of what he alone has done. God our Savior appeared. It's so funny, it's very similar to what's in verse 11 through 15. God appeared. It's initiated by God. It's not initiated by anything of our own. That little speck of goodness, it's not there. Verse 5 through 7, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, all of that is looking at the same event. So we were washed. You know, it's the cleansing of sin, and we were regenerated. That's another way to look at salvation. It's new birth. It's, it's new life. And then he says we were renewed, experiencing this newness of life. You know, all of those three phrases describe salvation. And we were radically transformed. And then we were infused, as he says, with the Holy Spirit, renewal of the Holy Spirit, who poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We were made then right with God through all of that in verse 7 and became heirs with Christ according to the hope of eternal life. The only reason you're different than the current pagan society around you is because God saved you. You have been imputed with Christ's righteousness. How can you hate those people who've never known the mercy of God? Can't you feel the same pity, the same compassion that God felt toward you? You know, when I'm angry or afraid of the people, I've, for, I've forgotten that God saved me and it wasn't anything I did. You know, I'm, we're made a part of this heavenly family even though what we were is described in verse 3. And verse 8 says, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work, works. So this is a spiritual axiom. If you don't know what a spiritual axiom is, it's a, it's a truth. It's a self-evident statement. You can always rely upon it. And, and Paul is referring to verse 4 through 7. Now historically, verse 4 through 7, it could have been a hymn. It could have been um, a creed of the early church. We're not certain. But this is what Paul is t saying to Titus. Insist on these things. You start with chapter 2. I mean, obviously, they weren't numbered back then, but start with chapter 2 through what I said all the way through verse 7 and remind these people. He highlights those people who have believed in God. Remind them each week how they're to live a godly life in a pagan culture. 
Man, I don't know about you, but I need that reminder every week. Stimulate them toward love and good deeds for others, towards godliness. And he doesn't bring out those people that just believe in a God, right? That Cretan society believed in a lot of gods, or just even those that believe. He's talking about those people that have taken the word of God seriously. And why should these things be insisted on or prioritized in the church? Is it so those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works? How do you and I let weeks go by and not fellowship with the saints or, or sit under the word being preached? Because we have more important things to do or other legitimate reasons. When the church comes together, it comes together to be spoken to with boldness and called to holy living out of the word of God, right? Because those who take the word of God seriously are going to engage in good deeds that are going to become good and profitable for the watching world. And we will gain a, a, a hearing. And lastly, number four is a reward. The very last sentence, Paul says, very briefly, these things are excellent and profitable for people. If you understand the common grace of God, if you live this way, it is going to benefit everyone that lives around you. So how you live your life will, is, is, if you just look, there's three sort of areas in chapter 2 that he's talking about. He's, look at Titus 2.5, right? He says, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, and submissive to their own husband, that the word of God may not be reviled. So if you actually do this, that the word of God would be exalted, right? And verse 8 says that the unbeliever will have nothing evil to say about us. It will shut the mouths of critics. And verse 10 says that in everything, and J.D. talked about this, everything we may adorn, adorn the, the doctrine of God our Savior, putting on a display God's saving power. That's what the church should be about. We don't want the world to focus on our politics. We don't need to express our views on political issues like Pew is suggesting we do. We want them to know that God is a saving God and that he transforms people's lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just a few concluding thoughts that I had. Number one, we need to take the word of God seriously the other six days of the week, not just on Sunday morning. If Houston is an example, the city of Houston, how are you going to survive in the world without your Bible open? Number two, Romans 13, Romans 13, 1 says, there is no authority except from God, and those that, ex that exist have been instituted by God. And Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So my challenge to you is remind yourself of these verses when you listen to the news or read the internet or shake your head in disbelief at some new law, tax, or executive order. And number three, if, if you want to see the world change, invest in your local church. Don't miss an opportunity for fellowship and hearing the preaching of his word or attend a small group or home, home group. My question, how do you survive on being fed once a week? You need to get involved and be ready for every good work. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for...
the book of Titus, God, we recognize that um, we live in a pagan culture and much of what has been thought about where we live and the Judeo-Christian values seem to be vanishing. And God, at times we get afraid and we get angry and we stump and, and, and sometimes pout. God, we, we repent of that, knowing what you have told us to do, that you, you have placed those people in power. It doesn't absolve us from voting or anything like that, but God, we trust your sovereign will. May we see that, um, that the life of the church you've given us is so important that we would spend our time there and that we would grow in godliness and sanctification, that we would become more like you, and that we would just spur one another on towards love and good deeds so that the world may know that you are a God who saves from all eternity without you. And God, we are grateful for salvation. May we live like it, God. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together as we close our time the passages that we covered today, I mean, it's almost, it's almost too good to be true, except it is. And, you know, we can sing about the fact that God's grace has appeared to all um, with the opportunity for everyone to know Christ and uh, to, to live no longer for ourselves, but for him. And I wonder if we often forget about the wonder of salvation and the fact that it's not, nothing of our doing but everything that Christ has done. Um, let's thank him for that. Let's uh, sing about the greatness of his amazing love. Oh